Hi, my name is Andrea Jansen, and I am on a mission to help people be ambitious at work every single day. That means you're fulfilled, you're productive, and you're contributing to your company. I'm a certified executive coach that has an MBA, a diversity consultant, a Forbes contributor, a business leader, a wife, and a mother of three. This podcast is about tackling hard topics like the gender gap in the workplace. It's about asking the questions that everybody's thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. Each episode is like the sweet spot between motivation and tactical strategies to get you ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. This is where we learn, grow, and create opportunities. Welcome to the Ambition Theory Podcast. Women supporting women is good, but here's the truth. In senior leadership positions in companies today, there are very few women. This isn't just my opinion, this is actually based on statistics. Today I'm sharing an episode from September of 2019 explaining how men can figure out their part in working towards a more equal workplace. Jeffrey Tobias Halter is a consultant to Fortune 500 companies, a TEDx speaker, and the author of the book Why Women? The Leadership Imperative to Advancing Women and Engaging Men. I am so excited to share this interview with you today. It is jam-packed with tactical strategies that both men and women can use to make the workplace better for everybody. Hello, it's Andrea Jansen here, and on this episode, I am having a conversation with Jeffrey Tobias Halter. I met him in May of 2018. He was the keynote speaker at the Groundbreaking Women in Construction Conference, and he was talking about why men need to be involved in diversity strategies and why women talking about the gender gap with only women is not going to change anything. In this interview, I asked him about bias. We talked about privilege. I got to ask him all of those questions that you are probably thinking about, but are too afraid to say out loud. So I am super excited to share this interview with you today. Hi, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So before we dive in, I would love it if you could introduce yourself and tell everybody listening what you do. Yeah. So so if you want to follow me on social media, uh, Jeffrey Tobias Halter is uh, is my given name. Please link in with me. And I am president of a company called Why Women the letter Y, women, and I focus on engaging men in women's leadership advancement. And we're going to get into how I started to do that work and and why I I see this as so important. But uh, I'm primarily a business consultant to Fortune 250 companies. Uh, I help them do two things. I work with executive leadership teams to help them create really tightly integrated women's leadership strategies. Most companies, even big companies, have a number of disjointed programs, but they really don't have an end-to-end business strategy around women or other dimensions of diversity. And then the second half of my work is actually very targeted to creating male gender advocates. What I have been so surprised with in this work is that there are a lot of men who want to help but believe it or not, they don't know what to do. They don't know what it looks like on a daily basis to be an advocate. And, you know, Me Too 
just seems to be grabbing all these headlines. The guys I work with um, uh, just want to be great leaders, great managers, great coworkers, and and great advocates for women, but they're never going to make headlines. So uh, so they uh, plot along inside corporations doing the great work that they do. So so that's my company and 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 what I do. So I think this is amazing. So I think it's really cool. It's really progressive. It's pretty cool, but I'm really curious as to how you got into this. So before you did the TED Talk, before you were a keynote speaker and author working with all these companies, what was going on for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's something, if you had told me 10 years ago, this is what I'm doing, I'd kind of have laughed at you. Uh, I came to this very late in life. Uh, I'm a sales guy. I was in sales for 20 years. And um, I worked for a variety of companies, but it was interesting as I would look back and reflect, there were a couple unique situations that would later play a role in me choosing to do this work. So I came into college, it was uh, 1978, uh, unemployment was uh, 20% and I had gotten married and I needed a job. So I took a job selling beauty supplies, full commission. You didn't work, you didn't get paid. And at the age of 22, I cracked the relational nature of women. And I didn't even know what it was. But I knew if I gave you great customer service, you introduced me to 10 of your friends. And within two years, I was the number one rep in the country. Uh, I won a new car. I was promoted to regional manager. I had 50 people working for me. Uh, our company was bought and sold. I would go to work for Procter and Gamble and I was a really good salesman, but P and G had their way of doing things. It was very transactional. It was about gross margin return on inventory investment. So how many times is that toilet paper turning on the grocery store shelf? Very engineering male focused. And in 1983, Procter & Gamble introduced the best feminine napkin a male engineer can build. (laughs) I want you to think about that for a minute, okay? And P&G was so excited about this program, the 97% male sales force got to introduce always feminine napkins. And so I got to stand in grocery stores. I just want to interrupt you for a second. <laughs> yes. This is a commercial with the blue water that they yes. hold yes. over it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I did that 10 <laughs> times a day in a grocery store to the buyer of the feminine napkins category, which was always a man back in those days. And we were trained to pour the blue water and grab the man's hand and say, doesn't the dry weave feel softer? It was so embarrassing. I think this was actually a PNG strategy because they would say, leave me alone, do whatever you want. We got all nine of our SKUs put in the, the section. And then one day after about a week, you know, you've now done this 40 or 50 times. I ran into a woman and as I grabbed her hand to say, doesn't the dry weave feel softer? She looked at me and said, softer, really? Have you ever worn one of these? <laughs> and, uh, and it was just this epiphany moment of, oh my gosh, I have no clue what I'm doing. And so I'd leave Procter & Gamble. I would go to Coca-Cola. I'd have a 
uh, 14-year career in sales, sales management, P&L. Everything I do connects back to the business. I really consider myself a business consultant who focuses on gender. And in 2000, uh, I was actually working in sales training, and uh, we had a big layoff and restructure. And overnight, I went from running sales training to leading the diversity education initiative for the company. We had to train 4,000 people as a result of a lawsuit. And I'm a straight white guy. And I wondered what meeting did I not go to to get in charge of this project? Because it was just awful. It was this awful diversity training that you see on The Office uh, with Steve Carell. Um, but it changed me. I would sit in class every day and I would hear story from people I knew and respected of racism, of sexism, of homophobia. And I had what they call a white male epiphany. And a white male epiphany occurs when you realize what white male privilege is and the world revolves around me. I'm always the default gender in every room and my voice is always heard and I'm always given the benefit of the doubt. And I just chose to get curious. And over the next 10 years, I would take on a, a number of diversity roles. Uh, my last role at Coca-Cola was actually director of diversity strategy. So I got to go out and benchmark with really best in class companies, everybody from Sodexo and Marriott and, and McDonald's um, to see what they were doing. And so uh, I left Coca-Cola in 2011 to open a consulting company focused on integrated strategies. And then about six months before I launched, it just dawned on me that diversity on a global basis is so different. You know, in, in Europe, it's multinationalism. In the south of the US, it's race. In the northeast, it's very much women-led. Uh, on the west coast, it, you know, it's a much broader conversation. And so I said, you know what, I'm gonna focus on women. Because if we can't have a genuine conversation around gender, then how are we going to talk about some of these other dimensions, these deeper dimensions? And then the last one that struck me was as I was going to all these diversity conferences and these women's conferences, there were always 10 or 12 men there. And, you know, picture this. So, you, so you're one of 10 men in a room of 800 women. And it's like, dude, what are you doing here? And to a man, they all said, I want to help. I want to be part of the solution. And it just dawned on me that there were a lot more men who wanted to help and didn't know what to do. And so that led me to, uh, to hang out a consulting shingle uh, called Why Women. And uh, my first year, I probably had uh, about four or five clients. And last year, I was on the road almost 30 weeks um, talking to companies and nonprofits and government organizations. I probably gave uh, close to, to 35 to 40 keynotes and workshops. And if you had told me eight years ago this was out there, I just wouldn't have believed it. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm crazy busy in this now second career that I didn't even know about 10 years ago. That is a really, long answer to your question. That's a really cool story. And I love it that it just like the reality happened and you had, I love it how you said that white male epiphany moment that you had that and you're like, wow, I do have the privilege 
what would happen if I became a change maker? Like what if I kind of could be that leader for other people like me and be that voice so that people can speak up, find their way in the place. But you also talked about, I love that you talked about going to a women's conference and having mm-hmm. 10 women um, in the audience because that's where we met at right. a trans construction conference in yep. your keynote. And it was interesting because I remember before the conference thinking, I am so excited that they have a man on stage as the keynote because they, they get it. This conference understands that it's not a women's only issue. Right. And I was so excited that you were there. But that was not the most common opinion of the other women at the conference. I definitely heard comments about, I can't believe they would put a man on stage. This is ridiculous. It's all about women's empowerment. I'm disgusted. Like really not feeling the same level of excitement as I did and not seeing it that way. So do you get that a lot? And let's talk about what that means. Yeah, no, I I do get that a lot. Typically, it's before I speak. Um, Because once I get out there, you know, my opening is is pretty standard for all these audience because I I would love to tell you I spend my days talking to 800 men. I don't. I talk, I spend my days talking to 800 women, uh, 80 men, and bringing them a story of how they go and drive systemic change for women and telling them what men don't understand. And my point is today in in corporate America, men are still 80 to 85% of senior leadership. You will never drive long-term systemic change for women without men. We're 80% of the problem, but we're 80% of the solution. Women have been talking about advancing women for 40 years. And if we look at the trend numbers, they've really plateaued in the last five or six years. We're not seeing the great movement upward. And I believe it's because the message isn't getting to men. And so to answer your question, I typically do get a lot of calls from women's groups to come in. And you can you can tell the, the people who've kind of seen me or seen my YouTube or my TED talk because they're very eager to bring me in. And then there'll be one woman on the call who'll be like, well, why would we want a man? And then when you explain to them that there's a lot of men who want to help and you need their allyship because they are still in leadership, then they start to soften. And then by the end of the talk, um, I, I consider most of them to be advocates for the cause of engaging men, but it's, it's a pretty common conversation that I, that I have a lot. Okay. So let's talk about, so with 10 to 80, so what are some ways that you're getting men involved? Yeah, this is really fascinating. It's a, uh, as I, as I do my talk, it's a head and heart conversation. What so many people don't realize is they think men get it. Uh, and, and what I would challenge your listeners to do, so, so I have a self-assessment, and it's called a male advocate profile and a gender advocate profile. And you can go and download this at my website, 
and I know you're going to post that later, but it's www.ywomen.biz, and it's an assessment. And it has you answer 10 questions around how you think about gender equity and 10 questions around the actions you take. And believe it or not, even women score higher in thinking about gender equity than the actions they take. And so the reason I say that is I spend the bulk of my time talking to senior leaders about the business case. Now, we've been talking about the business case for 20 years. The difference is we're moving from a conceptual business case to an operating business case. There was a great data point in the McKinsey 2018 Women in the Workforce study, and it said 76% of leaders believe their company can articulate the business case for women, but only 18% hold people accountable. Now think about that. As a business person, when do you ever do anything if your boss isn't asking you about it, if it's not important to your paycheck, if it's not part of your daily routines. And so this notion of accountability for actually doing the work is one of the linchpins. And that's where men need to know the business case for women and be able to talk about it. And so it's really driven by four vectors. And, and whatever industry you're in, you have to talk to your senior leadership on their terms. So what's keeping you up at night? This is always the question I ask senior leaders. Now, they will say routinely seven to eight things, but, but there's three really important ones that women are drivers of. The first one is revenue. It's really tough to drive, you know, the eight to 10% growth I was driving in, in, the, in the late 90s. I'm, I'm eking out a three to 4% growth rate, but I still need to deliver double digit operating profit. I need to get more done with less. And then the third one that no one's talking about is I'm scared to death that I'm going to have a social media issue and it's going to stymie my company. And so what I talk to them about is women are actually the answer to three of your biggest problems. So let's break these down real quickly. The first one is revenue. This is well established, you know, women buy or influence 83% of every B2C product sold in the country. In the U.S., that's $7 trillion. If the U.S. economy had a gender, it would be female. I go back to my Procter & Gamble story. So how are we connecting with consumers? But then more importantly, how is your sales force connecting with customers? Because I guarantee you, if P&G had had a 50% women's sales force, they probably would have been more effective selling feminine napkins. The truest same in B2B, though. Uh, there's a Harvard Business Review study that says the customer is changing. Women are sitting in 40% of procurement roles, whether it's industry, whether it's Department of Defense, whether it's construction. And so the quote is, you can't show up with a bunch of 42 longs and expect to be successful. Um, I'm doing work right now with Fidelity. Uh, this is a perfect example. They sell financial investments. Women in the US, the, Can the Canadian numbers are similar, are going to inherit 20 trillion, with a T, dollars 
in the next 20 years. Money their parents left them, money they made on their own, money their husband left them. And the first thing they do, Andrea, is fire their male financial planner because he's been patronizing to her. And the, then she calls her girlfriend and says, who are you using? And so smart financial companies are figuring this out because the men have never talked to the spouse sitting across the table. So that's the revenue piece. Um, the operating profit is really around talent and engagement. There's a huge war for talent going on. Um, we're at 4% unemployment. Canada's about the same. Um, 10,000 boomers a day, largely older white men like myself are leaving the workforce. New entries into the workforce are 85% women, people of color, or millennials. And so everybody thinks that, that millennials are kids. Well, no, millennials are turning 39, and, and many of them are women. And so managing talent and this talent crisis becomes critical. This is the pain point. You've got to find your company's pain point. So I work with Bristol Myers. Uh, they're one of my clients. And I had a great... Uh, summary point from, from a gentleman who's doing this work. He said, Jeff, right now I need 16 organic chemists and I can't find them. Uh, uh, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. There's a hundred biotech companies in this area competing for the same talent. And, and so this war for talent is real in every industry possible. And then you have engagement so how are you people engaged? Are they, are, you know, and this is why you need women's resource groups. So you're getting all the work out of people. And then the last one is social media. Um, how do you prevent being the next Uber? How do you prevent that one bad manager from grabbing headline news? You know, I think Starbucks is a good example. If you had looked at companies that are really good at DNI, you'd say Starbucks. But as a senior leader, are you ready for your worst manager on their worst day? Because in Philadelphia, that's what happened. You had a bad manager on a bad day, and it made the news. And nobody wants to deal with this. Now, Starbucks did the right thing. Uber never figured it out. This founder of the company lost his job. And if you don't think sexual harassment's going on in your company, you better start talking about it. Because millennial women aren't calling HR. They're posting a blog on it, and you're going to be front page news tomorrow. So revenue, operating profit, and company reputation are why you need to do this. That's the headpiece. That's why you need to hold people accountable. That's why you need to communicate it. And that's 80% of the challenge. And the 20% comes from the heart piece. And that's this personal connection. And we're going to talk more about how you drive advocacy and what that, that heart piece is. Okay, that's interesting. So I know you've been traveling a lot. And we talked about um, there being like a tipping point for women in the workplace. And I know you're traveling in Switzerland at a global conference there talking with a whole bunch of CEOs. And I want to get your perspective on that. Like what is next. So all of this is going on. People are starting to see this opportunity. People are seeing that, you know, what, I need to take action because if I don't, it's going to happen outside of my control. So where are companies going next? What is yeah, that? Point? Yeah, this is fascinating. I, I did a, a, a blog about two years ago that said women were reaching a tipping point. And now I believe they're actually over it. Um, 
And it gets back to, it's not just business, it's societal and it's government. You've got to look at, at the tea leaves lining up. Um, two years ago, now almost three, a million women marched demanding their voices be heard in Washington, in Canada, all across the world. Women are demanding to be heard. We're seeing governments passing legislation. You know, everybody thinks that France and the Scandinavian countries are the first to do this. They were trailblazers, but today California passed a law that said in two years, you have to have three women on your board. Now the fine is not that big a deal. It's $300,000, which uh, to a company is not a big deal. But if you don't have three women on your board, you're gonna be judged in social media. Companies like BlackRock are calling out companies to increase their board diversity, or we, the California Teachers Union, the New York pension plans are not going to invest in your company. So there's this societal thing going on. Uh, and, and then you've got women's voices gathering. And so in the, in the last year, I have talked to 100 women in the Women in Titanium conference. Women in Titanium, they have their own event. And I've spoken to the women in supply chain and I've spoken to the groundbreaking women in construction. And I've spoken at the Massachusetts Conference of Women. Women are gathering, demanding their voices being heard. And then you have the Google walkout where globally women walked out and said, we want an end to forced arbitration and we want board representation to increase. So you've got all these tipping points hitting the fan. But it's all and, coming and, from and, the bottom, right? Because you talked earlier about like 85% of senior leadership is men. Yes. So it's still all at the bottom. Like it's this rising up. But like, when are we going to hit the tipping point of the top down? Yeah. Um, and that's there. The, the problem is it's not widespread enough. You know, there's, if, if you look, there are, um, there's 50 companies that are doing this really well. And you can go out and research those IBM, Marriott, Sodexo. They've been at this for 20 years. Um, what you're seeing is companies waking up and, and realizing they're behind. You know, when does a company realize they're Sears? When does a company realize they're Blockbuster? Um, and, and smart companies are choosing to get ahead of this and, and starting to talk about it. I love that analogy about Blockbuster and Sears. Because <laughs> when do you figure like, this out? Yeah, like we like that's the thing about companies. It's all about innovation. What's the greatest next idea? And it's like, yeah, like this is it. If you don't do it, everybody else will, and you're going to be left behind. And that's that war for talent, right? And, 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 it's, um, and, it, and it's the war for consumerism and it's the war for social media. And if you're not doing it, you are being left behind. And so smart companies are getting ahead of this. And, and what you're seeing, um, you know, we reached a tipping point in, uh, in July where every company today in the U.S. in the Fortune 500 has one woman on their board. The last company that held out now has one. So then how do we get to three? How do we get to parity? And how do we continue to drive that? And, and this conversation's not going backwards. It's only going forwards. 
So I have a question. So you talked a lot about um, these regulations. So California passing the law about having a certain amount of women on boards, kind of companies striving for those specific numbers. So this brings up the idea of meritocracy. Because I want to talk about that because setting the target is good, but how do we know that the right people are going to be put into the right positions? Yeah, this is fascinating. Um, Men believe meritocracies work. The cream rises to the top. What meritocracies don't factor in are a number of unconscious bias, a number of micro inequities that women feel that conspire to hold them back. And so as much as we want to say meritocracies work, what's fascinating is, believe it or not, in high-performing companies, performance is not a differentiator in who gets ahead. And I'll explain that. Uh, There's a great book by Harvey Coleman, and he talks about the pie model, performance, image, and exposure. In high-performing companies where everyone's really good, everybody's at 130% of objective, everybody's an A++ player, performance is only 10% of the reason people get ahead. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get ahead if you don't perform well, but performance is a very small factor. Image is 30% and exposure is 60%. And this is where we get into micro inequities and double standards. Image is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And what are those words? And are those words positive or negative? Or God forbid, somebody says nothing about Andrea. Well, I don't know who Andrea is. Why would I let you in my club? I'm not going to call it the boys club because women are in there. But the C-suite is a club. And if you want to get in that club, you better meet all of the criteria. And if you've got the predominance of men judging that criteria, it's going to be much harder for women to move up. Image is critical, and, I, and I'll give your leaders, uh, your your listeners, a, a test to do. Go ask ten colleagues to use three words to describe you, and are those words associated with the job you aspire to? Because the double bind dilemma for women is if we think about behavior on a continuum, men can be everything from ultra-aggressive, profanity-using, fist-pounding, to very quiet, introspective, right? If it's a 100-point continuum, men can be anywhere from 15% to 85%. Women are either too hard or too soft. It's the Goldilocks effect. You're never just right. Because if you're too hard, you know what you're called. If you're too soft, you're not taken seriously enough. This is not quantifiable, but I believe that the range for women is somewhere between 45 and 55%. It's very narrow. And, And so what do people say about you? And are you getting feedback for improvement? Uh, and, And this is a really powerful one. Women need to demand specific feedback. I've, I've, taught, I've spoken to women who have been told in their performance review, you know, you need to smile more. Uh, you need to be more approachable. 
what man has ever been given that feedback? Yeah, I've gotten that feedback before. <laughs> of course, of course, yeah. You know, it's this likability factor, and, and women fall into that trap as well. Women prefer to be liked than respected. And, and so this is where you have to decide what kind of leader you want to be. There's a great video I would ask your listeners to go watch by Carla Harris. Uh, Carla is a very strong, powerful woman. She's the vice chair uh, of, uh, I want to say Merrill Lynch on Wall Street. But in her first year, Carla was called in by her boss and said, Carla, you're just too soft. You're never going to make it on the street. Carla said, okay. So for the next year, she was hard. She used hard language. She did hard negotiations. And a year goes by, and what do you think her boss said? You're being too hard. Carla, you're too hard. And Carla pulled the review out from the previous year and said, what do you want? I don't think you know what you want. I don't think you know how to judge and assess people. And so this is where it's a real self-reflection. And you've got to get the support of others. You know, I'm not saying you become uncoachable. You have to be yourself. And you have to find leadership that is supportive of who you are. Okay, I want to take a break for a sec, Jeffrey. I want to talk about as a manager, because we're talking about what women can do for themselves is demand that feedback, be coachable, and just recognize that the double bind is a thing and you're probably going to get that feedback. So that's just something that is the reality of working today in 2019 as a woman. But what can managers do? I think a lot of it is most managers have never been trained on how to give good feedback for performance. They tend to assess performance on how they advanced. And I will tell you today in business, there is no tougher job than a middle manager. Uh, you know, if, if we go back to the, to the recession of 2008, I went from managing six people to now having direct responsibility for anywhere from 12 to 18. And the new workforce demands to be managed individually. Part of this is millennial, part of it's just changing uh, cultural structure. I mean, it, it was easy being a manager in the 90s. We treated everybody the same, you know, and, and we told you what to do and it was command and control. Today, I have to manage every employee I have differently. And so those become powerful conversations that many managers aren't prepared for, many managers aren't prepared to give feedback. So for managers who want to get better, I would go and practice and study and take a, a, a coaching and feedback program to get better at this and just practice it with your peers. Um, giving feedback is, is really a big challenge. Compounded by, and we're going to talk about this later, um, there just tends to be a lack of empathy for many managers about what's going on. This is the one thing I'm constantly amazed at is as you talk to workers today, um, there is no work and life. Everyone leads an integrated life and women more so everybody everybody speaks around women having two full-time jobs you know women 
never turn off the family responsibilities. They're just not wired like that. Men kind of have a unique ability to kind of block out some of that. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying, you know, this is, this is what the research shows. And so how can I best support you becomes a really powerful conversation. Unfortunately, for most people, it has to be employee-led. Um, a big conversation we have a lot of is around maternity leave. Uh, and, and one of the things I'll share with your listeners, that's no great surprise, but a man will go on the record and say this. So, Andrea, I, I, I know you have children. Uh, when you were working, you came into my office and said, Jeff, I, I need to tell you um, I'm pregnant. The first words that go through my mind are, oh, shit, what am I going to do? Now, I will half-heartedly smile and say, oh, that's wonderful, but there aren't too many managers who are really excited, male managers, that you're going to be going on maternity leave because all you're doing is disrupting my world for me, and I'm not saying that's right, but it comes from conversation, and, and this is where it's really incumbent, and, and sadly, it falls mostly on women to lead that conversation, both when you're going on maternity leave and when you're coming back. And this is where we get an unconscious bias. So you come back and maybe I had you in line for a great job, but it's going to involve travel. And so I don't even put your name forward. You need to come don't back. Don't even ask me either, right? Don't even ask you. No, no, no. You just had a child. How could you possibly take this job? I'm doing you a favor by not putting your name in the hat. It's all good intentions. Well-intentioned. And this is where women, you know, particularly coming back um, or just even on an annual basis, you know, women go through different phases. Cause, and, I, and, I, and I say this about women because they're still doing the bulk of childcare responsibility. But your situations change. And so this is where it's incumbent on you every year to tell your manager, hey, I'm ready for a change. I can travel. I've got a great infrastructure. Um, you know, my husband's going to stay at home. Um, and, and so you need to guide that career discussion because managers left to their own accord may make well-intended decisions on your behalf that actually hurt you. And when your children move into grade school, you know, potentially now, um, you can go travel more. You can take that promotion. You can take on more responsibility. But, and again, I, and I don't say this to be um, glib, but, you know, I'm not really paying attention if your children are, are, are four or five or six. I just know you have young children because I got 12 people to manage and, and I got crazy busy deadlines. So, so I, I, even though I say it's up to the manager, I think it, it ultimately comes back from a career development standpoint for the employee to own their career. I think managers need a lot more training on unconscious bias, on uh, giving good feedback, and quite frankly, just listening to what's going on in your life and, and asking the question, how can I support you better? As opposed to the old school, which is you're here to do a job. I love that idea of asking a question because that it just opens up possibilities, right? How can I support you better? It gives that person, the employee, the opportunity to say, you know what, I really want to get promoted in the next six months. And then it gives you that opportunity to start talking about the kind of support that you need 
to move your career forward? Or maybe it's like, how can I support you better? Oh, I need maybe reduced hours on Friday or something. And it just opens the conversation. So it's not, the onus is not totally, it opens the door so that the employee doesn't feel like they're going in and it's going to be a big, hard, difficult conversation. It's just a conversation to see like, how can we get the best out of this talent that I have on my team? It's engagement. At the end of the day, Andrea, I want the most work I can get out of you. So how can I help you to give me the most work? And this is a fascinating conversation because what the research shows is women were asked, would you like a promotion, a raise, an extra week vacation, or flexibility in your day? The overwhelming response was flexibility, uh, specifically from four until six, because that's when your world goes to hell. I find it interesting. I've read another study. I think it was about millennials. It, it didn't talk, it didn't base it on gender. It just talked about millennials. Yeah. And they said whether they had kids or not, that they wanted that flexibility because it was about, you know what? I want to go mountain biking after yep. work. I want, you know, I don't have a daycare pickup, but I have a running club that I go to at five yep. and I want to be able to do that. And it's this idea that that kind of, I think there's been a stigma like before that women have this like, oh, I have to leave to pick up the kids from daycare. And then people feel left behind picking up the slack. But reality is, you know what? They have life. Everybody too. wants it. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants it. And then the other interesting thing is that the boomers said they wanted it because I think this is a generational yep. survey. And their main motivation was to take care of aging parents. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, that flexibility it doesn't matter what you do with it, but it levels the playing field for everybody. And it's not about women and children. It's literally nope. about having better lives for your employees so they can engage and be full on when they're at work and then take care of their lives when, they're, when they need to. Yeah, it's really fascinating. That is the one question that I'm challenging organizations with, and especially men. I do a lot of work. Uh, I tend to have a lot of engineers in my room for some reason. And I challenge them from an engineering standpoint to change the context. I want you to solve the problem. I can't make flexibility work to how can we make flexibility work? And it just changes the mindset. Um, Because to your point, it is the number one thing everybody wants. And oh, by the way, you got an iPhone attached to you 24-7. You know, this notion I have to see you to know you're productive is so antiquated. And if we need to meet live, I've got FaceTime. You know, I'm, I'm on my computer. Um, we've got to change this old mindset because you're right. Everyone wants it. And if I don't give it to you, you're going to leave mm-hmm. to a company that gives it to you. And then it gets back to this shortage of talent thing. So how do you solve it? Yeah. So we talked a lot about what women can do, what employees can do, but now I want to talk about what men can do and how men can become allies. So you wrote a blog post and there was four things that are big barriers for men to get on board. And I want to talk about them. So they are empathy, apathy, accountability, and fear. So let's tackle all four of them. So start with empathy. Uh, empathy. So tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. Empathy. um, It's actually a lack of empathy. And the core of that is I do not believe men and women are having different experiences on a daily basis. Um, 
and, and, and this boils down to the little microaggressions. Uh, your voice being talked over in a meeting. Uh, the expectation you're going to take notes, the expectation you're going to set up the next meeting, all this office administrative stuff that even though you're a peer, um, you know, you're still taking on. Um, and, and so there's one simple solution to this. And, and I would really encourage your, your listeners to talk to men about this. Um, take a woman to coffee and ask a simple question. What don't I know about what you're experiencing that I'm not? And you know what, Andrea? Most women aren't going to say anything. They're going to take the good company line and say, there's no issue here. And men need to ask again, tell me what I don't understand. And don't say, well, you know, we got a program for that. We got a policy for that. Um, just listen. And then ask a third time. And in that last 10 minutes, you're going to hear root cause issues you've never heard or understood. Um, I mentioned I do this work with Bristol Myers. I made this comment that women's voices are talked over um, six to eight times a day. And this gentleman was a senior scientist, and he didn't believe me. And so after taking my program, he called me about a month later and said, Jeff, I sat in my staff meeting. And I didn't believe what you said. I'm a scientist. I needed data. Every time a woman's voice was talked over, she was shut down, her ideas stolen or ignored, I just made a check mark. And when I reached 20 occasions in less than a week, I went, we have a problem. And so these things seem really minor, but when a woman experiences them eight to 10 times a day, it's a really big deal. So the solution to empathy is to listen. Apathy. I don't get what the big deal is. I just don't get what the big deal is. Why are we doing all this women's stuff? The, the way to solve apathy is to learn. So you have to learn this business case. You have to be able to talk about it. That's this headpiece. This is all the data. How do you operationalize the business case? Accountability. This lack of accountability, I gave the data on why leaders aren't held accountable. Accountability boils down to if it's not important to my boss or my paycheck, why should I care? And so all I want leaders to do is one thing. I want them to lead. And it's as simple as this. So you're a VP, you're an SVP, and you've got a job opening. And you call your department heads in and say, okay, I want to see the next people we're going to interview for this. And Jim brings forth a, a slate of candidates and he has no women on it. And I say, Jim, you know, we're really trying to advance talented women. We're, we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, level the playing field here. Uh, Jim, I really need you to go back and think about why you don't have any women ready. And that's the key question. When a leader says, I don't have any ready, I'm going to say, okay, I'm giving you a pass one time. What a leader needs to do next is say, what are you doing to get some ready? I love that because that feels like it's meritocracy, right? It's like, yes. don't force one. It's like, okay, you're not ready this time. All right. But the accountability is you need to do something. Yes. And so I'm going to give you a pass one ready. time. 
Um, and, and, and that's what leaders do, right? Leaders ask tough questions and things get done. But I've seen so many leaders say, oh, you're right, we don't have anyone, uh, anyone ready. Let's just move forward. That second question is so powerful. I love it. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing about it? Uh, and then the last one is fear. And this is this notion, um, men are walking on eggshells. And, th and this is part me too. And this is part, I'm, I'm just afraid I will say or do the wrong thing. And so I choose to do nothing. I'm paralyzed. Um, can I say, gee, Andrew, that's a nice blouse. Uh, can I open a door for you? Do I not open a door for you? I don't know. I'm so confused. And this is the heart piece. The way you overcome fear is having the will. Advocacy comes from a personal connection. It drives me crazy when people say advancing women is the right thing to do. Well, you know what? So is diet and exercise. And yet we have the worst obesity crisis in history. No one does anything because it's the right thing to do. Advocacy comes from a personal connection. And, and so regardless of, the, of, of what you're advocating for, if you don't have a, 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 a North Star, if you don't have a connection, this becomes very hard. And I have found the men who are choosing to do this work either have a working spouse, uh, they were raised by a working mother, they have a sister, or they're the father of a daughter. And this father of daughter one is really interesting, and this is one of my main soapboxes. Because as a boomer, um, I wanted to raise a strong daughter. I encouraged her, whether that was music or soccer. I made sure my daughter went to a great school. But when my daughter graduates and makes 87 cents to my son, when my daughter graduates and is faced with the same off-color jokes and snide comments by my male peers, I choose to do nothing. I never make the connection that if I'm not advocating for women, I'm hurting the women in my life's future. And so this becomes their guiding principle. And most of the men that I work with are the father of not one, but two or three daughters. And they have come to this epiphany to say, I've got to be part of this change. I cannot let this continue to happen. And, and that's where personal accountability comes from. That's the heart piece. Um, I talked about head and heart. That's the heart piece. Um, and so also on my website, you can download two initiatives. One is called Advocating for Women, 10 Things You Can Do on a Daily Basis to Demonstrate You're Advocating for Women. There's also a father of daughter version. You put your daughter's name on it and sign it. Again, it's more so a reminder of what you need to do on a daily basis to become an advocate, but also just by putting it up in your office, it will invite women to come into your office and talk to you about the experience that you're having. So this simple symbolic gesture really is powerful. Or they can post it on social media, just put it out there that they're Absolutely. an advocate. So, yeah, and so it's listen, learn, lead, and have the will. And that's how you I'm overcome curious. the barriers that men are about, facing. I'm really curious about, because I agree, I've talked to people about this and I find men that have daughters are really, they get it quicker and they're like, yes, what can I do? Like, yep. how do I go forward? I want to learn more. Whereas 
without that, would it be, would it make sense to lean more on the business case and get some kind of, cause they get that they're already thinking that way and kind of start there and then yes. learn more. Maybe the heart will follow. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really a yin and yang, right? Because the business case gives them the language to go back and talk to their male peers about, you know, just having a daughter is not going to arm you with that conversation. And then the other thing I, I tell people, I believe we take the wrong approach when we do this work. Uh, and this comes from being in corporate training for 20 years. We train to the lowest common denominator. I'm going to tell you um, 10 to 15% of men will never get this. And, and so I figured out I'm not an idiot whisperer. Um, I would rather work with the 20 to 30% who want to get really, really good at this and then it's a brand adoption model. Then another 50% of men will do it because, oh, Jeff's doing it and Dave's doing it. Uh, it's the right thing to do as a leader. Um, and then that other 15%, they're just going to work their way out. Once you create a company where their behavior is no longer tolerated, so, so let's stop talking to the idiots and, and let's start raising up the advocates that want to do this work. And, and, and so that's my approach is, is let's, let's, let's find the advocates. Let's encourage them to come in and be allies and advocates with women side by side. And, uh, and that's how I think you're going to drive long-term long systemic change for men and women, millennials, people of color, everybody. I love it. So just focusing on people who are ready to go, ready to learn, ready to take action and work with them in your company, because that's where it's going to start. And they're going to be the influencers anyways. Absolutely. I love it. And I love that you said that we trained to the lowest common denominator. And I have one last question for you. Yeah. Is, and it, it, it's built on that comment you made about training to the lowest common denominator. And this is something you talked about at that groundbreaking women in construction conference is diversity being HR. Tell yes. me why it can't be. Yeah. HR doesn't run the company. HR is an enabler. HR plays a critical role, but it gets back to this business case. The business needs to own your diversity initiative, your advancing women initiative, whatever it looks like. Why? Well, because sales and marketing control revenue and the bulk of your employees are in, call it whatever you want, operations, supply chain, where all the people live. And so in most companies, it has to be aligned to a line function because that's where P&L lives. P&L does not live in HR. They're a cost center. They're a staff function. And the other really important part is it's where the money lives. So here's a great question for your listeners. And that is how much money is your company spending to advance women? Most companies I work with have really well-intentioned employee resource groups. And, and these are, you know, pick a number, 100 to 300 women. They're given a budget of 20 to $30,000. And these well-meaning volunteers with no money are charged with driving the entire women's agenda for the company. So, Andrea, let's, let's, let's do this. So, so you're head of the Women's Forum, and I come to you and say, we're going to be doing a $1.5 billion merger. 
And so I want you to take your volunteers and here's $20,000 and we're putting you in charge of this huge business initiative. I think you'd be successful. No. And this is what we do with the advancing women's agenda. Most companies, um, most companies have less than $100,000, which is a rounding error in the company balance sheet. Um, there's maybe a handful of companies that are allocating a million dollars to advance women. Well, if you're a, if you know, if you're Google and you're, and you're cranking out, you know, $50 billion a quarter in profitability, I don't know what's the right number, maybe a billion dollars. Um, think about that. What's, what's, what's the algorithm for how much money you should be spending? I don't know, 0.001 of your operating profits. How important are women? Well, you tell me by the amount of money you put against it and the resources you put against it. Yeah. So that's how you can tell if your company's sincere. Totally. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I always want people <laughs> to leave because this was a lot of stuff. Yes. There's a lot of stuff for people who are women who are like, okay, like I'm ready to go. I want to navigate. I want to advocate for myself. Yep. There's a lot of stuff for that. And there was a lot of resources for leaders who want to bring women up. So I would love it if you could, I like to give everybody something really tangible that they can get started doing right away within the next 24 hours. Yep. Because if you don't do something right away, you never will. So yep. one thing for women who are want to advocate for themselves, and then one thing for managers who want to be advocates for women. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I spend every day doing is very simple, and it's for both groups. Go and have a conversation about gender differences. If you're a woman, initiate it with a man. If you're a manager, initiate it with a woman. Have Oh, just so a manager could be a woman too. That manager could be a woman. Let's um, and and so um, uh, yeah, my bias showing, I guess. Huh? How embarrassing! <laughs> Everybody <laughs> has it. It's okay. <laughs> um, go have one conversation around gender, and start that conversation and build from there. And if you want to know what to have the conversation on, um, go to my website. Uh, I give everything away for free. There are half a dozen white papers. There are self-assessments. Uh, I've got about 80 LinkedIn blogs. Most importantly, I have a newsletter called Gender Conversation Quick Starters. And all I want companies to do is once a month have a gender conversation in a staff meeting. Do a lunch and learn. You can do these yourself or you can subscribe to mine. Watch a commercial. Read an article. You know, the newspaper at least once a week runs something on gender um, and talk about it. I want to start gender conversations because that's how we're going to start to realize that you're having a different experience than I am. And then I'm going to choose to get curious. And then if I'm a leader, I want to know how I can support you. Uh, so go to my website. There are a dozen tools you can download for free to take back to your company. Uh, if, if, if you asked me, um, what does success for this podcast look like? I would say 12 staff meetings held over the next year on having gender conversations. Um, that would be a huge, Start with the conversation. and it cost zero, yes. cost zero. 
I love it. So it's love, it's about being curious, having that conversation and as a woman or a man, just learning because as a woman, like I am biased too, right? Like, yep. Well, you know, and, and this is oh, funny I and, I, and I don't want to derail this at, at the end of our podcast, um, but I do want to talk just for a moment about some of the research because men witness this and it's women not supporting other women. And, you know, when, when, Andrea, you say something negative about a woman, it carries 10 times the weight than if I would say something about her. I'm not saying that's right, um, but there is research that shows um, some women can actually be tougher on other women. Uh, there, there's two schools of thought. One is they had to work really hard to get there. And then the second one is if I'm gonna take a bet on you, you better be really good. And again, this gets back to a double bind dilemma, you know, so, so if you say Helen is ready for a promotion, well, you know, the management teams may be thinking, is Andrea just playing the women's card? But if Jeff says Helen's ready for a promotion, oh my God, he's seen as a great leader. He really gets this diversity thing. And all we've done is nominate the same woman for the role. And so that gets back to, you know, why men need to be part of this right or wrong, um, men are observing how women support or not support other women. And, and so to your point, um, you know, we, we need to drink, bring some women into this conversation who aren't necessarily advocates for advancing women either. Mm-hmm. So we need both. We all we need, need to both. Be it's about both. It's all, it's, all, it's about all of us. We all have biases. We shouldn't be ashamed of them. We just need to recognize that they're there Yep. And move forward, get curious, ask the questions. And yeah, so for an individual, have that conversation with somebody. For a manager, bring the conversation up at your next team meeting. I love it. So simple. Just get started. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jeffrey. This was really awesome. And these tools are great. And I will put links to them in the show description so people can click there below to get them. Great. There is a lot happening at Ambition Theory right now. If you want to stay in the loop, make sure that you subscribe to our newsletter. It comes out every Sunday and it's a combination of motivation and strategy to help you and your company get ahead. When you sign up, you'll also get a free phone wallpaper that is a reminder to get out of your comfort zone because that is where the magic happens. Go to ambitiontheory.ca forward slash subscribe to sign up. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity and inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much. 